How y'all doing today? It's really, really good to see you. It is great to be in the presence and in the worship of our magnificent God, isn't it? I want to take just a few moments before we land the Jesus for President message run. We're finishing this thing off today, and I want to update you on what's happening with our missional mobilization strategy led by Bob and Shana and Tyler, who have all been on Journey's staff team since August and have been cranking hard uh, since then. And I want to start by saying, in real short, our goal is that every person who calls Journey their home, that we would all fully embrace the call that God's given every single one of us to go and make disciples, to go and live out the Great Commission. And that's where this whole missional mobilization, this whole missional community endeavor we're undertaking begins with the biblical mandate of Jesus that all of us who follow Jesus are to be disciple makers. And the scriptures are quite clear on what a disciple looks like. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who first walks by faith. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who every single day wakes up and walks by faith in God. They hear and respond to God's voice. They obey. They trust. They depend. There's no heel dragging. There's no kicking and screaming. When God says go, they just go. I'm in. I'm in. A disciple of Jesus walks by faith. A disciple of Jesus Christ also communicates their faith. Hide it under a bushel That was meager. I love you, but that was meager. Hide it under a bushel. There you go. That's an A. A disciple communicates their faith. Disciples of Jesus Christ display and declare both the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is very simply this. God made us, every person on planet earth, for relationship with him. But our sin screwed that up. This idyllic relationship that God made us for with him, our sin fouled that up. So God sent, because he loves us, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our remedy. We just sang it in that song. To be our remedy, to die on the cross, to pay my price for my sin, which means that every person on the planet has the opportunity to be restored to right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and trust him with their everything. They're here, they're now, they're forever. And then a disciple is someone who, three, multiplies their faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Go look that up sometime. That verse talks about a disciple being a person who is able to make disciples, who can then go and make more disciples. A disciple is someone who multiplies their faith. And Jesus' model of disciple-making took lots of time, lots of access, and lots of imitation. Disciple-making never, ever happens overnight. Disciple-making never, ever happens from a hundred or more feet away. Disciple-making isn't a classroom experience or exercise. Disciples are made by doing life together in the normal rhythms and flows and patterns of life. It is not a quick process. Think of it this way. It's a crock pot versus a microwave. Disciple making is a crock pot versus a microwave. And so we have all this undergirding us, which means that our missional mobilization team is really intensely today focused on building that kind of a discipleship culture right here in the life and ministries of our church. They're attempting to build out the discipleship ministry of our church in such a way that everyone who wants to be can be a disciple as well as can be a person who is involved in making disciples just as part of the normal flow and pattern of their life. And so that means that 
to this point, we've launched two pilot discipleship groups. We're helping a handful of leaders learn how to walk by faith more and more, communicate their faith more and more, and multiply their faith more and more. That's what we're doing right now. We've retained the services of a national coaching organization that helps churches like ours embrace their missional call to make disciples. And they've already told us on numerous occasions, look, this is going to seem really, really slow at first, a la a what? Crock pot, that's exactly right, not a microwave, but that's okay. They just sort of pound it into our heads. That's okay, because you're not just thinking about the next month and the next six months and the next year. Rather, you're thinking like three and five and ten years. Actually, we're thinking until Jesus comes back down the road which means that it's going to be really, really worth it for us to be patient. And there's really, there's no way that we could roll out missional communities. We could never do like a 40 days to missional community thing. That, that sounds nice, but it would never, ever work because we have to first have a rock-solid discipling culture led by a critical mass of missionally aligned, missionally minded leaders, which is where that team is investing every single day right now. Now, if you've been around Journey very long at all, you know that we prefer it when things are at microwave speed. We prefer it for things to move quickly. It's just sort of in our DNA. I'm an activistic, apostolic type leader. I prefer microwave over crockpot when it comes to speed. But, real honestly, I prefer crockpot results over microwave results, right? Like when something is cooking in the crock pot in your house, you walk in and, and it is intoxicating, isn't it? Like, whoa, it sweeps you off of your feet, doesn't it? But when you walk into the house and somebody has just microwaved a hot pocket, <laughs> you're like, what hap- like what's on fire Anything you cook in a specially formulated sleeve is gross. If you have to put your, what they call food, into a sleeve and put it in the... No, that's not even food. It's just not sick. So we, we want crockpot results over microwave results, especially when it comes to deeply affecting and changing the culture of our church, which is exactly, real candidly, what we're undertaking here. So, all of you... Uh, I echo what Bob said a few minutes ago. I say thank you and way to go. It's like a mantra around here. Thank you and way to go for all of your interest and excitement in all that's coming down the pike around missional mobilization. And would you just hang tight, please? Would you just be patient as these uh, sort of sea changes roll out around here? Now, if you're someone who doesn't live in Belgrade or doesn't live in Bozeman and you're part of Journey and you don't live in Bozeman or don't live in Belgrade, one thing you can do right now is let us know who you are. Let us know that you're around here because we have some things in the missional community, in the missional mobilization uh, realm that we want to be working with you on specifically. And if you're not from Bozeman and you're not from Belgrade, if you're from somewhere else, anywhere else, I don't care where anywhere else is, just grab the card out of the chair pocket, name, address, phone number, email address, and say, I ain't from around here, and uh, drop it in a silo a little later, and we'll be in touch with you because we want to work with you on some things like now. If you're from somewhere else, you don't have to be very patient, okay, which is cool. Now, in the vein of being disciples who communicate our faith, 
Coming this winter, our missional mobilization team is going to be teaching on the weekends, helping us in mass learn how to display and declare the gospel with people who don't yet know him. Evangelism training, like 101 right here with all of us, and I'm very, very much looking forward to that with all of you. That was a whole boatload of stuff I just dumped out. If you have questions, you can ask me or Bob or Shana or Tyler or somebody out of the information center. Final message of the Jesus for President Run. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, Did you notice, by the way, it's election day on Tuesday? Election day on Tuesday, uh, which means uh, by Wednesday the ads will be gone. Right? They're all going to (laughs) be... Yes. They'll all be gone. And I want to just say this. Would you please just go vote? Would you, would you please just go vote? Exercise this unbelievable privilege that I'm convinced really comes from God himself. God's permitted us to have this liberty and this freedom, this voting deal. And so just go vote. We, we don't have an excuse to not vote. And so please go do it. A famous Greek poet said... If you tell me who you love, I can tell you who you are. Max Lucado, famous author, he put it this way, the sign of the saved is their love for the least. Bill Hybels echoed him by saying, we've never locked eyes with someone who does not matter to God. We've never locked eyes with someone who does not matter to God. And then Chuck Swindoll, as only he could do, put the icing on the cake when he said, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they treat those who can do nothing for them. And that's a really difficult thing for us to live because we're all ladder climbers. Our culture challenges us and leads us and screams at us that we're supposed to be ladder climbers and we're supposed to step on and step over all manner of people to get to up there the upper rungs, and so. And it's a really, really difficult thing to be a person who treats people well, who can do nothing, nothing for us. And John Blanchard, he almost missed that lesson. John stood up one day from the bench. He straightened his army uniform. He studied carefully the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book that day off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not so much with the words printed on the pages of the book, but with the notes that were penciled in the margins. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With some time and some effort, he managed to locate Miss Maynell's address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and invited her to correspond with him to be pen pals of sorts. The next day, John was shipped overseas for service in World War II. And over the course of the next 13 months, the two grew to know each other via mail. And each letter by letter by letter was a seed Falling on a fertile heart, a romance was indeed budding. At one point, Blanchard requested a photograph, but Miss Maynell refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter at all what she looked like. 
And when the day finally came for him to return from Europe, John and Hollis scheduled their first meeting, 7 o'clock p.m., Grand Central Station, New York City. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. I'm going to let John tell the rest of the story from his perspective. A young woman was coming toward me, he writes, her figure long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears, her eyes were as blue as flowers, her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips, going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Manel. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick-ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle to them. I did not hesitate. My finger gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held the book out to the woman. Even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I have no idea what this is all about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I was to tell you that she's waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. Some kind of test. And it's just true, isn't it? That you can tell an awful lot about a person by the way they treat those who can do absolutely nothing for them. And in the centuries of Christianity, there have been a lot of Christ followers who have never fully embraced the view of justice that God calls we as his followers to rise to. Many, many Christ followers have not even attempted to pass God's justice giving test that every single day he lays before us. Lots and lots of Christ followers haven't even attempted it. When Journey first started getting involved in Ethiopia, launching Ethiopia Hope, and so I had countless people approach me, email me, call me, and say, you know, we're not as a church supposed to worry about water wells and the poorest of the poor on other continents. That's not our job, Brian. We're supposed to be all about preaching the gospel. I even had one guy come up to me and say one time, so I see you're all done harvesting the low-hanging fruit here in Bozeman, huh? Going to go get involved in Ethiopia where it's easy to reach people. I had no idea even how to respond 
to that. I had no idea. And you see, this view that the church isn't supposed to dig wells or feed people or bring justice comes from a very real misunderstanding of the fact that in the Old Testament of the Bible, God shows particular interest in the poor and the oppressed in the downtrodden of society, doesn't he? You read the Old Testament and it is all over the pages of the Old Testament. Again and again and again, care for the poor, love the poor, the sick, the orphan, the widow, and on and on and on it goes. But then you cross over from the Old Testament of the Bible to the New Testament of the Bible, and what do we see and hear Jesus speaking mainly about? Themes of love and forgiveness and grace, and we don't really hear an awful lot about care for the poor, care for the orphan, care for the widow, care for those on the margins of society in the New Testament. And so a guy named Tim Keller, who's very bright, who I hold in very high regard, he points out that this misunderstanding many Christians carry, it might seem plausible to us, but it's still a misunderstanding. Because see, for Jesus Christ, those two distinct objectives, caring for the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the neglected, the forgotten, and so, and the twin objective of declaring the gospel, they're not, nor have they ever been mutually exclusive. They're not two things, even. Jesus declared the gospel to all people and he had a laser-focused, crystal-clear objective to serve and to tangibly demonstrate the love of God to all manner of people, especially people who lived on the margins of society. And you just think about this. Jesus himself moved in with, became one of the very poorest of the poor, didn't he? Remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about the contrast between that city of Sepphoris, which was really the monument city to wealth and power and security that Herod had built for himself, and then how Jesus moved into literally one of the poorest places you'll ever find anywhere, the village of Nazareth. Jesus lived with, ate with, associated with, was one of the socially ostracized in society. It's who he was. One day Jesus raised the son of a poor widow from the dead. Went out of his way to raise the son of a poor widow who could never do anything for him. Raised her son from the dead. On another day Jesus held an immoral woman in the very highest regard allowing her unprecedented access knowing that she would never be able to repay him, do anything for him, help him get anything, accomplish anything, go anywhere. Jesus, he went so far as to speak to women in public. That was, by the way, off limits for men of any social standing in his day. He refuted every single day this inherent sexism that was so pervasive in Jesus' time. Jesus, as well, bucked the racism of his culture. He made, as a matter of fact, a hated, and I mean like hated Samaritan, the hero of one of the most famous parables he ever uttered. One day Jesus set a riot in motion when he claimed that God loved Gentiles, those are non-Jews, a Gentile was a non-Jew, with a love that was equal to his love for the Jews. That was scandalous. No, it can't be true. Oh, it is true. And the children, Jesus loved children. His followers considered any interaction with them, however, less than optimal use of his time. And Jesus said, stop it. Let the kids come To me, they matter. They matter. They can't do anything for me. They'll never help me get anywhere or anything. But they matter. And then lepers. People with leprosy were like a staple of Jesus' ministry. 
not only were they sick and dying, they were cast out to like the furthest margins of society. And absolutely, Jesus met their physical need for healing. And he touched them. He touched people with leprosy. Unheard of in Jesus' day. Allowing many of them to experience probably the first human touch in years, decades, the better part of a lifetime, perhaps. Jesus exhorted us, his followers, to give to the poor in startling, startling ways. Again and again, ways that like, are you kidding me, God? You can't be serious about that. Yes, he is. And at the same time, he's challenging us to give extravagantly to the poor. He praises the poor for their over-the-top generosity. Look how they demonstrate generosity. Look how they get this. Jesus demonstrated justice by availing himself to all people. It wasn't just the poor. It wasn't just the rich. It was everybody. He ate with and had relationship with tax collectors. They were the wealthiest people in society, yet they were the most hated people in society. Nobody liked tax collectors. Shepherds. They were the first witnesses to Jesus' birth. Yet in Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, they were completely and totally unreliable, despised, shepherds people would sneer shepherds and maybe even more scandalous than the shepherds is the fact that women who in jesus day were a class of people so oppressed their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law women could not even testify in a court of law in jesus day and yet what were they the very first witnesses to jesus Christ's resurrection jesus came to women first after he rose from the dead, again and again and again and again. He goes out of his way to serve and to love and to minister to people who could never help him get anywhere or do anything. That's who Jesus was. That's what he was all about. And one day at a gathering, Jesus spoke these words from Luke fourteen twelve to 14. Then he, that's Jesus, turned to his host and he said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. I'll unpack that in a few moments. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Later on in that same chapter, I want to show you this because it's a factor. If you want to be my disciple, Luke 14, 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And I show this to you because what Jesus is saying there in Luke 14, 26 is that your love and loyalty for him is to so far exceed your love and loyalty for anything else in such a way that it looks like hate in comparison. Jesus is not telling us to hate our family. Sometimes people misunderstand that text. He's not telling us to hate ourselves. That would be in direct contradiction to all the other times in the sacred text when God tells us we're to love people and so on and so forth. And I show that to you because it gets real clarifying for what Jesus says about who we're supposed to invite to our dinners and to our parties, how that's supposed to work. Back to the other text. Because you see, the high majority of business in Jesus' day operated on what they called the patronage system. 
That meant that people with great means created vast networks of influence and power by opening doors and by giving resources to other people who in turn provided business opportunities, political favors, and then looked out for the interest of their patrons. That's just how it worked. In that kind of culture then, banquets, large gatherings, large parties, they just became a necessity, a staple of the culture. They were expensive, incredibly costly, but they paid off because that's how you advanced your business, advanced your enterprise. Those parties were the way you sustained and rewarded current patronage and were also opportunities for grooming and developing new ones. You'd invite rich neighbors, rich peers, existing business clientele, all scratch your back, you scratch mine. Cheers to you. And then Jesus says these words. And I mean, you don't understand how dramatic this would have been in Jesus' day. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. Don't do it, he said. And when he said that, it, it was like asking people to commit economic and social suicide in Jesus' day. Because that's just how it worked. I invite you, you invite me, we're all happy, we all do business together, us four, no more. Jesus says, that's not the way it's supposed to work in my kingdom, that's not how it's to go. He said, in my kingdom with you, you who follow me, you share your homes, and you build relationships, not with people from your own social class or higher who would benefit and profit you, but rather you Christians, you build relationships with people who are poor, who are without influence, who are several notches below you on the ladder of life. You build relationships with people who can never, ever, ever pay you back in any way. Go out of your way, church. Go out of your way. Now, as well, we got to understand Jesus is not in any way saying, don't ever invite your friends for dinner. He's not doing that. Same deal, he's not telling us to hate our families. We know, you read the Gospels, you see Jesus eat meals in homes with friends, with peers, and so. So what is it that Jesus is calling us to? What is it that he's summoning us to? It's, it's this. It's a life, and this is a hard, hard teaching, and it might make some of you mad, but I'm, it's the Bible, and it's not my word, it's his. What Jesus is calling us to is a life whereby we spend, watch this, more of our time, more of our money, and more of our resources on the poor, on the outcast, on the downtrodden, on those whom society has cast to the margins than we do on our own entertainment, on our own vacations, on our own eating out, on our own socializing with quote-unquote important peers who can help us achieve our financial and social and personal goals more. More. He says, church, Christian, Christ follower, you who claim my name, you go out of your way to serve those on the margin of society, to give, to be generous, to minister Two. It isn't you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's you go 
and you stoop and you get your hands dirty and it's inconvenient and it's yucky and it's always, always, always messy. But you go and you see what Jesus was doing is he's launching an assault, a frontal assault directly on the root of the kingdom of this world system. Christians, you go give without ever expecting any kind of repayment. Christian, you go get about being motivated by a sense of bringing very, in many cases, very simple justice to the lives of people who everybody else has given up on, everybody else has cast out, everybody else has cast off. You, Christ follower, you go alleviate misery for people who are created in the image of God. Every last one of them. It doesn't matter their social standing. It doesn't matter if the relationship is going to benefit you. You don't even think about that. There's no profit motive here, Jesus says. And just one of the ways that we around Journey are seeking to bring justice, the justice that Jesus intends for us to bring to the world is through adoption. Lots of you know this, an orphan care, a ministry that we call Encompass. And every single day across the life of our church and frankly across our community as well, Encompass leaders are helping families just like Josh and Rebecca bring the justice that Jesus invites us to bring to kids from here as well as all around the globe. And I want to show you just a little bit of Josh and Rebecca's story. Watch this if you would. So back in 2008, um, we were at a service and Brian kind of brought forward a mission um, of partnering with Ethiopia and uh, doing some outreach there. Uh, Maybe some missions or just work there in Ethiopia along with adoptions and Right away, Beck and I were like, yeah, we're all in and we'll support this financially. And um, we kind of left it there. And our plan really was to have three kids by birth and be done. So by the summer of 2009, we had accomplished that goal. Um, We kind of just sealed the deal. Our family was, was complete. But two years later, August of 2011, we were sitting watching Seinfeld, I think it was, and... I was reading a blog of a a family who was participating with Summer of Hope, and I said to Josh, do you think we have kids in Africa? And he looked at me and said, oh, I've always thought that, (laughs) and went back to watching TV. (laughs) So we talked about it. We we talked about it a little more, and we're we're fine. We knew we were going to adopt someday, and so... Um, we just continued on with our plan. We do uh, help financially, and someday in the future we'll adopt, and kind of left it there. And what eventually then led us to adopt, a month later we were sitting um, in a weekend worship experience, and Brian was talking about saying yes. He wasn't talking about adoption specifically. He wasn't talking about Ethiopia. I just had this stirring in my heart that something big was coming for our family and in just kind of one instant I knew that God was asking our family to say yes to adoption now. Josh saw the tears rolling down my cheeks which is a rare sight, I never cry. (laughs) I knew something was up and he knew what it was without us even talking. So we said yes to adopting. And from there um, it was probably one of the greatest things um, in our lives as far as increasing our faith. When we said yes the Lord placed in our hearts that we were going to adopt older children. And the whole process, you could see the Lord working 
in our family and in our hearts. And um, it's just an amazing thing. Nothing short of the Lord placing his hand on our family. And it's been a little over a year since that message and since we moved forward with our application and our home study and that whole process. And Yabrolam came home October 5th. Uh, and she's our oldest of, of four now. And yeah, like Josh said, more and more. Yeah. Come, we hope. Maybe a month we'll be adopting <laughs> more kids uh, from Ethiopia. I never do this, but Yibberlum is right there. Yibby, will you give us a wave? You give it, no, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's looking for a hole in the floor right now. Get me out of here. Yibberlum, we are so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Yeah. Take your stuff and set it aside, if you would, please. And would you just close your eyes and bow your heads and just get still and quiet with the Lord? And would you hold this question up to Him for you? What does it look like for you to say yes to Jesus' invitation to bring His justice? to those whom society has cast out and cast off. What does it look like for you? Jesus, what does it look like for me to bring even, I love that line, simple justice to those around us here and on the other side of the globe? What does it look like for me What's my application, Jesus? Would you just press in with him on that question? And it's an important question because our application point is different. It might be the same for some of us, but there's going to be a broad variety of application points. Like Josh and Rebecca and a whole bunch of other people it might be adoption for you. Or maybe it isn't adoption for you, but maybe it's helping resource those who are adopting. Or maybe it's your under-resourced neighbor, the one that lives right next to you. Your call might be to bring the justice of Jesus Christ to them. Or how about that student that's in your kid's class who you know just struggles and his or her family struggles in every way you could possibly struggle. I mean, I know the deal we hear and we read these hard teachings of Jesus and all of us, me included, sometimes we try to wriggle off the hook. No, I, that's not for me. That was like 2,000 years ago and Jesus is saying something. No. We're squarely on the hook. We are still to this very moment to be bringing justice in every way possible to as many people as we possibly can. What is it for you? What's your yes point today?
And then there's this whole other invitation that God's inviting you, all of us, to say yes to in this time. And it's his offer of love and salvation and forgiveness and complete and total redemption once and for all. The redemption that permits us to live in harmony with God. And God wants you all, every one of you, to know that today that doorway to a relationship with him is wide, wide open. And maybe you're here or within the hearing of my voice and you know that you're not living in harmony with God's life, God's will, God's design for you. You can today take that step of saving faith, saving belief once and for all, and you can do that by praying along with me a prayer that goes like this. Jesus, I get it. I'm a sinner and everything about me is far, far from you. I also get it, Jesus, that I can't save myself. I'm incapable. And so for the first time in my life today, I'm opening the door of my heart to you. I'm gratefully, by faith, receiving your gift of salvation. I'm trusting you as Lord and Savior of my life. And I thank you, Jesus, with everything in me for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead, for promising that you're coming back someday for us. Come into my heart, Jesus. Please be my Lord. Be my Savior. And maybe you're a person here today and you're making that decision to step into faith in Jesus Christ for the first time in your life today. I just want to say that that is the biggest deal in your whole life, the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And it's kind of an anonymous thing. It's just you, me, and God. Nobody else in this room is looking around. And so if you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, to ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, would you just be real brave and real bold? And would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Just slip your hand up right now and lock eyes with me. And just let me say yes with you. Let me say yes with your yes. Yes, way to go. Absolutely. And there, yeah, absolutely. Way to go. Yes. And here, yes, absolutely. Yes, way to go. Life changes from this point forward. It's all different. That old stuff, it, it's gone and it's new from here on out. Yes. Just make sure I catch your eye. I don't want to miss anybody. Jesus, we're just wowed by everything that you are and everything that you do. We're wowed that you're saving people right here, right now in this room. That you're drawing people to yourself. We're wowed, Jesus, that you choose to involve us in your justice-bringing mission on the planet. That's astounding to us because you don't need us. Sometimes we just screw things up and get in the way, yet you desire again and again and again to use us, to send us. We're just wowed. We're wowed by your Holy Spirit inside of us that gives fuel, gives energy and gives life to the mission that you've set us on, part of which is bringing your justice to people. And so we pledge to be your followers who obey you, who don't kick our feet or drag our feet or cry no when you send us, but we say instead, God, we're going. We are going. And we will be your hands and feet wherever you choose to send us. We will bring your justice. We will bring your kingdom. 
we are on the hook, Jesus, for you and with you. We love you.